0: Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> now, don't think this will matter to anybody in the room, but for uh, just a good, fun bit of reminiscing, this is actually the first passage of Scripture I taught in this church. Uh, it, actually, interestingly, I taught it in Sunday school uh, the weekend that I candidated to be pastor. And I tried to teach all of the Beatitudes in one Sunday school. It did not work. It was a terrible Sunday school. And it shows the kindness and the compassion of the people of this church that somehow I still made it to be pastor. (laughs) So now let's see if, by God's mercy, after a, a dozen or so years, maybe I do this a little bit better than we did the last time. Not a high bar to jump over. (laughs) God's word, Matthew chapter 5, worst case scenario, I've read it and we hear God speak, we can call that a win. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, would you please give life and light to our heart? Your word is perfect, we are not. Would your spirit please use it to prepare us for heaven? We ask for Christ's sake, amen. Just, I guess, within the last week or two, depending on what school system or what county you're in or what state, I guess, uh, many students throughout our community entered into, well, for me, what was my least favorite day of the entire school year. In fact, the entire year altogether, the first day of school. For me, it was always my least favorite day. I know other students shared, give it a week or two, and then everything got better. But that first day was the day where you walked onto campus and you thought, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what my teachers want. I don't know what their rules are going to be. I don't know how everybody behaves here. I don't know who my friends are. I don't know. You can tell I change schools a lot. I think I went three, four different schools in middle school alone. What I realized early on and what I think many students today realize is that for much of life there's a cultural learning curve where when you step into new experiences, you just don't fully know what to expect yet. You saw this in college the first time you took a professor and had to figure out what was important to that professor and what wasn't. How did they like their projects turned in? What did they care about? What did they not? And you had to figure them out. It's why as a senior, college was so much easier than as a freshman because you just didn't know yet. Good news, kiddos. It always gets easier. It's a similar kind of moment that we're having in the Gospels where Matthew has been telling us uh, the story of Jesus. He's been telling us the arrival of the high king and the way that he has been particularly emphasizing this tale is highlighting the arrival of the real Jesus into real time, into real space, into real history. And this Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is, I've been saying, he's the high king. He is the one who rules and reigns over everyone else. He is perfect in high authority. And thus far he's been kind of framing out for us this Jesus is a little bit different than what you might have expected. Chapter 1, he is the high king. He's the king of the Jews. But his story is different. He's born miraculously of a virgin. That tends to not happen in human history. He's miraculously protected by God, taken away to Egypt, fulfilling prophecy every way that he goes. That tends to not happen in history. In fact, actually, even in chapter 3, he's baptized, and uh, the Trinitarian God comes down and blesses him in that baptism with the Spirit of God residing upon him and marking him as God's beloved son. But interestingly, we've been, so far throughout the book, largely talking kind of around Jesus. We've been telling his story, but it's not been in his own words. It's not been in his own mouth. In fact, chapter 4, we get to see him speak a handful of times, but when he does, it's quoting scripture and telling Satan to go away. Good things to do. But chapter five is different because here we kind of turn the corner, and and using our opening illustration, it's the first day of school. It's the moment where we get to see the high king on his throne in his first sermon explaining what life is going to be like. Maybe if we were going to put it in, I know not everybody likes this, but a, a sports illustration. This is the interview, the, the athletic promo right before the game. You know, where they cut away to the sideline reporter and the sideline reporter is there and, and they're talking with the athlete and the athlete's in their full, you know, uniform and they're all sweaty from where they've been warming up and they're getting ready to go play and they ask them some inane question to give the athlete chance to say, yeah, we're going to kill the other team. They're terrible, we're the best, and be excited about that. This is Jesus' kind of first promo, his first interview, the first chance for him to explain what does it look like to be a part of this kingdom. What does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of Christ Jesus? And again, you would expect him to lead off with, well, it's where people that are victorious and they're mighty and they kill the enemy and yay! And that's what all the Jews are expecting. I mean, we know that because throughout this book and the rest of it, they they continually ask him, when are you going to rise up and kill the Romans? We've got our swords, we're ready. When are you going to kill all the bad guys? And unfortunately, I think so much of even the American church today, we still, we're still stuck in that Jewish mindset. Jesus, when do we get to kill all the bad guys? Well, I mean, not really. We'll just go online and assassinate their character where they can't answer. Jesus, on the other hand here, is going to lay out in his opening sermon the first kind of real portrait of what he's going to say. These beatitudes is what we call them. The blessings of the kingdom, but what he's doing is he's explaining the culture of the kingdom of God. He's telling you what his citizens look like, what his citizens behave like, what they act like, what, what they are on the inside, which again is perhaps a little different than what we might have expected. trying to put these in kind of groupings so we can kind of wrap our brains around it the first thing is uh, he begins by explaining his people have an awareness that they are empty people said again his people have an awareness that they are empty people so he begins here in verse 2. He opens his mouth. He has his disciples in front of him. This is certainly aimed at disciples. He's got the large crowds around him. The crowds aren't catastrophically large yet, but they're very large. And he begins by explaining the very essence of what it means to be in his kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. And he starts with what would be shocking to the listener. Blessed Well, they're comfortable with that word. It's stronger than blessing. It's not quite equal with happiness. It's kind of this whole idea of just right ordering of life. This is what the, the good life looks like. That's probably the better translation. This is the good life. Blessed are the poor. And that's where you would expect the sentence to kind of begin. Blessed are the poor. Oh, look, here's the great king. He's fighting for the little guy. He's coming to help the Jews and destroy the Romans. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Wait, what? Now I wasn't expecting that part. In just a couple of words, Jesus has changed from kind of this socialist, communist hero fighting for the oppressed, fighting for the little guy to acknowledging something very different. One of the foundational characteristics of what his kingdom looks like are a people that are aware of their poverty, of spirit. Poor in spirit, a term that we're hear often but not always familiar with it oftentimes can't define it well you know you can you think about it it makes sense the poor are those that tend to have very few resources they don't have a lot to spend they don't have a lot uh, in their corner so to speak helping them out and god's people feel that way acknowledge that is their spiritual condition in themselves to acknowledge that when I come to the table in my relationship with God, my soul is the problem. My spirit is the problem. I don't have what it takes. I'm empty on the inside. I don't bring myself to the table because I'm the problem. And I would... Probably say that out of all of the the Beatitudes, this is perhaps, this one or maybe the third one because they're so uh, wonderfully close together. But these, I think, probably are more antagonistic to the American worldview than just about any other part of the scriptures. To say, what does Christ's kingdom look like? What does his citizen look like? His citizen looks like a person who acknowledges, you know what, I don't have it all together. You know what? I, I'm actually the problem in the equation. You know what? My desires are the issue. My longings are the issue. My heart is the issue. I am the problem here. Instead of someone who knows like they have it you know, all figured out, in there, or acts like they, they know it all and they have it all figured out, instead of a person who pretends they have it all together, instead of a person who has a robust confidence in themselves, You see, these are the parts that are kind of antagonistic to each other. Poverty and spirit does not go hand in hand with self-confidence. It does not go hand in hand with self-esteem and intriguingly, Educational theory in the United States of America, probably the late 70s, certainly by the early 80s, had bought into the idea that the foundational element of proper education is to teach and shape a child's self-esteem, to build and inflate that esteem. And it's interesting now, we're watching the second generation raised on that garbage come out of school systems and realize I've been told that I'm supposed to have this massive self-esteem, and as I'm getting out in the world, I'm realizing it's a lie. Because you've been telling me I'm great, and I'm special, and I'm unique, and I'm the best all of my life. You've been telling me that, and now that I get out, I realize it's just not true. I'm great to you, I'm special to you, I'm the best to you, but I'm not objectively those things by the world's standard. We're we're, we're being inflated with self, and it's interestingly the foundational principle for coming into the kingdom of God and looking like a citizen of God is not being full of self. Self. And it's interesting how this one, I think, transitions directly into the next one where when you're not full of self, it enables you to be the kind of person who mourns. You're as selfish people, you may not realize this. selfish people are the saddest people you'll ever know. They are constantly mourning because they're constantly not getting the things they want the most themselves. What Jesus is framing out here is a person who acknowledges that their desires, their selfishness is the issue, and it lets them mourn for the right things. Rather than mourning for not getting their way, rather than being aggravated because they don't get what they want, it allows for rich sorrow over the things we're supposed to be sad about. Luke includes this passage differently. Instead of putting those who mourn, he includes those who weep. That's how he terms it. It's a people who, who looking at the world around, this, around them, see the brokenness of sin, see the brokenness of themselves, see the brokenness of their friends and their family that they love, and they weep over the right things. I said this last week, but it bears repeating. Look at the people who aggravate you the most. And 99 times out of 100, they're the people who infringe on your selfishness. That's why they cause you to weep. That's why they make you mad. That's that's why they're constantly aggravating you is because they're constantly stepping on the toes of your selfishness and yourself is suffering and you weep and you mourn and you get angry and you get sad over yourself. Instead of weeping and mourning for the curse. Weeping and mourning over the existence of death. Weeping and mourning over the gap between the world in which we live and the world that we will live in. Instead of getting angry at those that infringe on our selfishness, selfishness, mourning over our selfishness even existing, mourning over their selfishness and how those two things contradict. It gives a freedom for those to weep over the right things. Again, for so many of us, if you look at what you're actually sad about, I mean, honestly, just pause for a little bit. Think about the things that you're actually sad about. How many of those things actually mattered 100 years ago at all? I mean, that's going to put a little bit of perspective, honestly. How much of our sadness today is manufactured over things that did not even exist a hundred years ago? Versus a people that mourn over the right things, that mourn over the sorrow that sin and the curse cause. Meekness follows. Meekness is kind of a combination of, a, of an understanding Uh, Of your lowly condition, that kind of uh, byproduct of understanding that you're the problem, but coupled with it a powerlessness. Meekness is the understanding that I can't fix the situation. It's the lowliness that comes from an understanding that I can't be the one to repair the circumstances in front of me that I have to have outside help, that it needs to come from someone else. So instead of being angry and being bitter, instead of being full of self and trying to constantly inflate my ego to compensate for my fragile, fragile inner parts, it's an understanding that's exactly how God made me. He made me to be in a situation in which I am to be the recipient of all that he has given. I'm not called to be the high king. I'm called to be the servant of the high king. Which works itself out in the fourth one. Again, all of these kind of framing around the emptiness of the people of God. Well, what is the the fourth? Well, the byproduct is they're longing for something else. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And normally, again, we would end that there. We would say maybe for, for nice food or for the pleasures of the world or for luxury cars or luxury items or things that make us feel good or even things that make us feel good about ourselves. But interestingly, what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst For righteousness. You can see how all of these kind of fit together in a tight unit. A person who understands that they can't be the solution, their sin prevents that from happening. It gives them the freedom to grieve over the things they're supposed to grieve for. It gives them the kind of personal temperament of those who understand only God can restore what is broken. And therefore, I will hunger and thirst for the things that can make for life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think this is, again, such an interesting moment in American history as we're watching our nation embark on a kind of national conversation in various forms. Politically, socially, racially, just all sorts of dynamics kind of nationally that we're talking about how we hunger and thirst for things to be different whether it's we want our political candidate to win or we want your political candidate to lose, whether we want whatever kind of social change we're looking for. It's intriguing that, that Christ's people are not those that are hungering and thirsting for political parties. They're not hungering and thirsting for, for societal change. I can say that. Instead, they're hungering and thirsting for the God who is righteousness For his ways, for his law, for his good truth. I said this in the statement of need. Again, the issue here is not that we are people of desire. We're not Buddhists that say, well, you just have to kill desire and you'll be fine. No, in fact, actually, the scriptures are very clear. We are to be creatures of greater desire. It's my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. And he said the issue is not that we have too much desire, it's that our desires are too easily satisfied. Right? We think food can solve it, or drink can solve them, or pleasures of the flesh, or, or children, or self-worth, or any of those sorts of things. We think those can solve our inner longings. And that foundational principle of Beatitudes is God's people, his citizens, are the ones who acknowledge this world is not enough. It's not enough to satisfy my longings. I have to have someone from outside. He's the one who has to be enough. God's people have an awareness of being empty people. Next, it's intriguing. They, they begin to pick up the behaviors of heaven. So while it's foundational that they're they're empty and longing for that which is greater and outside, next is that we begin to pick up the the attitudes, we begin to pick up the behaviors of heaven. Again, you think about this with small children, it's one of the great joys in parenting, where you begin to watch your children uh, pick up the habits of your spouse. And sometimes you think that's really adorable and good, and sometimes you're like, ooh, we need to nip that in the bud, right? That's not a habit we want them to pick up. I say that obviously about myself, not my wife. (laughs) These next grouping is where God's people begin to pick up the habits of heaven. They begin to pick up the habits of their heavenly Father. Blessed are the merciful. Our God who shows mercy uh, constantly to his people. All kinds of mercy, even down to the smallest things he shows us, mercy. Again, think about the last time you had any bit of kind of real difficulty in your home. Or medical emergency or any sort of great sorrow, and just to think about all of the multitude of ways that the Lord showed mercy in ordering your steps through that one experience. Leading you to the right people. Leading you to the right medical professionals. Leading you to the right friends, to the right family. Ordering you. He shows mercy to us, and it then equips us to be those that show mercy to others. Again, what a contrast. Instead of being those kinds of people who are fighting for our rights, instead of being those people who are fighting, demanding that it has to be our way or the highway, demanding that I have to get everything that I deserve, it lets us be the kinds of people who treat our life with an open hand to give it away. to to give ourselves away, to give our resources away, to, to be merciful with others instead of constantly demanding that we get what we deserve. And you can see here with just even this first one, man, this is really kind of cutting at the heart of what it means to be, in so many ways, what we think it means to be American. Certainly what it means to be worldly. I have to get what I deserve, and you need to get what you deserve. And instead, Christians are to be those that show mercy. Not just merciful, but a purity in heart. Again, what a contrast recognizing their inner poverty recognizing their inner weakness recognizing our inability to, to change our world instead we are filled with Christ Jesus we're filled with the spirit of God and it manifests their work in us manifests through this purity of heart a change in heart And I'll say, I've been a pastor long enough now that there there are few things that surprise me anymore, unfortunately, and I don't say that positively. There are few experiences where I'm like, wow, that is genuinely new. But I will say, the last 18 months, looking at the American culture, the new and deeper levels of depravity that we are pushing for, I've been like, well, well done, America. Kudos, you have shocked me again. You have shocked me with the the new depths that we are pushing for, the new evils and perversions, the new depravities that we long for. I think probably this might be the hardest one, the most difficult one for Americans today to, ca- I mean, Christians today to try to capture in America in this postmodern world because uh, thanks to the internet, we're exposed to all sorts of evil constantly. And to be a people that are pure still is so difficult. The people that show mercy of people that have purity on the inside. And what's the consequence? Because they're not fighting for their own rights. Because they're not fighting for their own needs. Because they're able to show mercy to others. What is the byproduct? Well, we're able to be peacemakers. And I would suggest, again, peacemaker does not equate with an excellent negotiator. An excellent negotiator is a person who can figure out how to rip the other side off and make them feel happy about being ripped off. You walk away, they gave way more money than they should have, but they're excited about how they did that and it worked just fine. Instead, a peacemaker is a person who figures out how to genuinely remove the conflict. And that's something that is only possible if genuine forgiveness is available, if mercy can be shown, if God's people are able to have a short memory towards the sins of their neighbor. And again, I challenged us in this. I've been challenging us on this one for a number of months now, but I'm going to continue to do so as as we move into our new building. And we go from two services to one service. And you get to meet a whole lot of new members of this church that you haven't met before because they've been going to the other service or worshiping with us online. We're going to have new opportunities to be irritated with each other. For people to do things a little bit differently than the way that you like to do them. For the session to ask for us to to change some of the ways that we behave as a body. That letter should be coming shortly. (laughs) And we're going to be given the opportunity to say, no, I have to have it my way. I have to have my needs met. I have to have it the way that's all about me. Or we're going to have the opportunity to be those sorts of peacemakers to say, you know what? That person's aggravated me. I'm either going to forgive them or I'm going to go reconcile with them. I'm not going to let it sit. I'm going to be the kind of person that promotes the peace and purity and unity of the church, almost like the membership value took when you joined. It's a direct quote. To be those sorts of people that, that seek the reconciliation and the unity of the people of God it's intriguing in Paul's ministry, he would even go so far as to say that the ministry of reconciliation is the summary statement of what the church's activity is. To take the sins of the people of God and to work through them so that we might be unified together again. You think of the book of Ephesians chapter 2, one of the clearest portrayals of the gospel, presentations of uh, you know, we're saved by grace. It's marvelous. Chapters three, four, five, and then part of 6 are all working out what it means to be unified in the spirit of God. God's people are empty people that begin to pick up the attributes of heaven. And funny enough, the more they do that, what happens? Well, third thing, they're hated by the world around them. There's arguments by the commentators whether or not 10 and 11 are two separate beatitudes. If it's one beatitude with a commentary, uh, if it's just one beatitude as a whole, it honestly doesn't matter. None of those are really things worth acknowledging. What it does highlight is that, look, God's people will have a unique relationship with the world. The more that God's people acknowledge our frailty, our emptiness, our need for Christ, the more that we begin to pick up those attributes of heaven to be those that show mercy, to be those that are pure in heart, to be those that are making peace, the more that we do those things, the more verses 10 and 11 are going to be fulfilled. Blessed are those, and there's a couple of keys here, Verse 10, are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not those that are persecuted for being an idiot. We've all had that friend, and if you don't have that friend, you are that friend. Those that feel like they're persecuted because they make poor decisions all of the time. And they're mystified that their poor decisions turn out badly for them. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. This is not, blessed are you for a lack of judgment. Blessed are you... When you're persecuted because you did the right thing. You behaved according to the kingdom of heaven. And guess what happened? You got negative consequences. They hate you. Blessed are you here gives explanation when others hate you. They revile you. They speak out against you. They persecute you. They utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They they make up lies about you. because of Christ's account. It should not surprise us. It should not surprise us. Again, it's intriguing how I think many American Christians today, we've kind of taken this, the online warriors particularly, have taken verses 10 and 11 and say, look, blessed are are we when we're persecuted, so let's go on the offense and be fighters. We'll be the aggressors. And the more that we can kind of manifest this online presence or even this aggression towards our brothers or sisters, or the more that we can be just generally obnoxious, the more blessed we are. And it's intriguing how this is the third part. Blessed poverty of spirit, emptiness, blessed for maintaining the ethics, the attitudes of heaven, and then being persecuted for that. Not the other way around. Not for being persecuted, for being obnoxious, but instead for looking like God. I'll end with, very quickly, just one intriguing consequence to this. This is the sort of kind of citizenship test that many of us would not like to think about. I mean, honestly, this is what Jesus is doing. He's explicitly describing what the kingdom of heaven looks like and what her citizens look like. And I would lovingly encourage you to pause and consider your life. How many of these attributes are attributes that you either possess or that you are actively cultivating now? How many of you hunger or thirst for righteousness? Or instead, hunger and thirst for the breakfast you were supposed to eat but you didn't because you were running late? How many of you are actively in the process of showing mercy to others? How many of us are actively making peace? You see, I skipped over half of this, didn't I? I mean, I gave all the duties... I got the blessing part. I got the poor in spirit part, but I skipped over the latter half of each of these sentences because honestly, that's the part as Christians that we immediately jump to, certainly as those that don't really like to have any delay between cause and effect. We immediately want the kingdom of heaven. We want to be comforted immediately. We want to inherit the earth right now. We want to be satisfied for our hunger and thirsting. We want it right now. We want to receive mercy. We want it right now. We want to see God. We want it right now. We want to be called the sons or daughters of God, we want that right now. We want the kingdom of heaven to be here right now. And I would say, in, in all of these things, we are getting these in a small way right now. But they're not fully answered until the life to come. The challenge that I would make for us today is certainly our God is generous. He forgives sins freely in Christ Jesus. He gives his salvation freely in Christ Jesus. You cannot earn it. You cannot accomplish it. All you can do is receive Christ. And he even gives you the ability to do that. But if you're in Christ today, if you are his child, it is our challenge, our task, our, our privilege and our duty to seek to embrace the culture of the kingdom of heaven. May it be that we would live our lives today, this afternoon, tonight, this week, in a way that fits this, not the cultural narrative in front of us. I talked about how first day of school can be a really scary thing for a lot of students. You know what takes away the scariness of that first day of school for most people? is if they meet a friend who already has that culture figured out. They already know how this teacher works. They already know how that teacher works. They already know how to get your food in the cafeteria, where you're supposed to sit, where your friend group is, and they can kind of hold your hand and direct you along the way. And I would suggest the same thing for the church. The church is a lot easier when the people of God are actively embracing that culture of heaven so that our brothers and sisters that are having a hard time, we can put an arm around them and say, let's do this together. Let's walk this path together until we're all together and perfect in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for King Jesus. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit for Christ's sake. Amen.